Hello, and welcome to Heilman and Haver, the stage and screen podcast coming to you virtually from Casa de Quinn and 1111 Studios in beautiful Port Orchard, Washington. I'm Greg Heilman. And I'm Matt Haver. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Each week, we'll bring you entertainment news and views, celebrate classic Hollywood, enjoy cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, interview talented local actors and directors, and chat with industry experts from L.A. to the U.K. In a few moments, we'll be joined by British film critic Matthew Turner. But first, we wanted to quickly remind you of the 2021 West Sound Film Festival being held online this year and free of charge in support of all of the artists and filmmakers impacted by the quarantine. Dozens of films produced locally and from around the world will be available to view online January 29th through 31st in genres ranging from documentary to dance to animation and apocalyptic. Check out our YouTube channel for an interview with the festival coordinator, Amy Cool, previewing the event. And for more information, visit westsoundfilmfestival.com. Greg and I were having so much fun and meeting so many interesting people in 2020, we decided to move from twice a month for the show to a weekly broadcast. We hope you're enjoying the lineup so far in 2021, and our schedule in February includes a lot of great folks. A major market talent agent, award-winning composer, a professor of music psychology, and a Hollywood screenwriter. So make sure to follow the show and tune in every Friday for each new episode. Coming up next week, Friday, January 29th, we'll be joined by Seattle-based actor, director, performer, and public speaking coach Zandi Carlson, who will share her expertise in building your brand as an actor, everything from headshots to audition wardrobe, social media promotion, and building a portfolio website. So whether you're a new actor or just want to brush up on your resume, you don't want to miss Zandi. And speaking of meeting talented people, we're so excited to welcome Matthew Turner to the show. Matthew is a lifelong film fanatic who has been a professional film critic for the last 20 years. He's also the co-host of the Fatal Attractions podcast, focusing on the erotic thriller genre. Additionally, Matthew is a contributor to the weekly, uh, the recently released What to Watch When, 1,000 TV shows for every mood and moment, available wherever fine books are sold. Matthew joins us from his home in Great Britain. Matthew, welcome. Welcome to the show, Matthew. Hello, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you. Um, so as we covered in your bio, you've done quite a bit of the last 20 years, podcast host, author, most notably as a, as a film critic. I think there are a lot of us that in some way at least dabble in reviewing films or at least getting our opinion out there. Everyone seems to have an opinion. Uh, so when did you first think about reviewing films and being a critic on a regular basis and as a profession? How did that come about? Um, it's quite a long story, but it's, um, it all came about because I spent a, an awful lot of time on internet film talk boards in the late 90s. Um, first of it was the, I mean, I was, like you said, I was a, I'm a lifelong film fanatic, so I'd always loved films. In particular, the, um, do you know Danny Peary's Guide for the Film Fanatic? Do you know that book? I'm not familiar with it. Danny Peary wrote a series of books called Cult Movies. He's, he's probably best known for those, but he also wrote a book called Guide for the Film Fanatic, which has pretty much been my Bible for the last... I mean, I was given... A, I'm 49 now. I was given a copy on my 16th birthday, and it's been it's never left my side since. I've been kind of steadily working through it all this time. So I've always had a strong background in film knowledge and film history and stuff like that, and as a result of that book. And... Um, so I was drawn to film talk boards, obviously, because, uh, so, so yeah, when I was a teenager, I wrote reviews in notebooks, like I suppose other people did, but I, that, that was really just for me. I didn't think anybody would ever see those reviews, and um, it was just sort of somewhere to write down things about films, and, uh, and so that, when the internet came along, became like, yeah, I was naturally drawn to film talk boards. So first there was one for Empire, and then later the, um, 
there was one for the Guardian. The Guardian newspaper in the 1998 London Film Festival sponsored that festival and created a talk board, so that ostensibly so that people who were attending the festival had somewhere to chat about the films afterwards on the internet. And me and a bunch of other people joined that that site in 1998 and it became like our lives basically like all my sort of London based friends are from film friends are from that website and over the years you know people have got married from the site and all sorts of things like that there was the Guardian then created a, a larger talk board that was a much that was a huge big sprawling monster but our film section of it stayed relatively small I've lost count of how many of us there were altogether, but it's it's still going in a sort of different form on a different site because the Guardian eventually closed it down. So yeah, so I was so I was posting regular reviews and seeing lots of films every week and posting regular reviews and comments to the talk boards. So on the Empire talk board, I was I was bemoaning the death of a recent film magazine called Neon, which is a great film magazine that was short-lived but really fantastic compared to what at the time Empire and Total Film were both going. And I got contacted by the editor of, to of Total Film, who had just left Empire. Who she was previously the editor of Empire, and she just moved to be the editor of Total Film, which at that point was like a was like a picture-driven, very boysy magazine compared to the kind of Empire-alike magazine it is now. And um, she basically wanted she'd seen my post about Neon, and she wanted to know she wanted to talk to me about how she, you know what what could she do to improve Total Film, basically. And so I fired off an email saying, well, since you asked this, 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 this and this, and she invited me in for a chat, and I went in for a chat. And, and um, I still wasn't thinking then of becoming a critic. What happened was she, she later, because we'd established that connection, she asked me to um, write a news piece. I, I, po a late, I posted a piece about Star Wars The Phantom Menace on, um, on Empire. It was just something I'd seen in the news, a silly story about how like radio DJs were pranking Star Wars fans by saying, right, if you want free tickets to the Phantom Menace, go to the middle of your wall, of your nearest Walmart, dressed as dressed as Darth Vader, and shout, take me to Jabba, or something like that. And it's and so, I turned that into a news piece for her at her request, and then I did a couple of other news pieces, and then because of that, I I thought I'd a, a job came up on, a job came up on I think the Empire website, the Empire Talkboard website. Or the, or the website rather, and I didn't have the relevant experience to, to um, apply for that job. So, so a friend of mine on the, at that time the Empire Talk Board, he he was the film editor for W H Smith Online. Another uh, uh, W H Smith is a UK department like stationery store slash magazine slash news agent whatever, and they were doing film reviews. And he said, well look, why don't you write a couple of film reviews for me? I'll post them on the site, and then you can and then you can use that as kind of relevant experience to to say that you've written on the internet, basically. Uh, and I did that, and I didn't. I don't think I, I'm not sure whether I even did apply for the job in the end, but but that became a regular, my first official reviewing slot, basically. I'd been paid. My first paid work was for the magazine for those news pieces, but my first reviewing work was for W H Smith Online, and that lasted, I think, approximately a year. And doing and in and during that time, uh, I'm sorry, this is a very long story and I did warn you, but never mind, you did ask. Uh, during that time, um, a website called View London got in touch uh, they, and they posted adverts actually on both the Empire and the uh, uh, Guardian talk boards saying, would you like to, to be a film critic? Uh, if you would, get, get in touch and what have you. And I got in touch and 
I stayed in touch with the with the people behind that View London website for it was a good year between between me first contacting them and, and them actually launching. And at the end of that launch, I basically became the, the the film critic for View London, and I had that job for for fourteen years, reviewing films. We started relatively slow, but it, but soon I was reviewing every film every week, and it was a crazy amount of of work basically. But that's what got me onto the kind of film critic circuit and uh, going to screenings regularly and building up relationships with PRs and things like that. And then in 2014, they sadly closed and I went freelance at that point. So now I write for a variety of different publications and, uh, and things like that. And yes, I'm very sorry. That was a, a way too long an answer. Hopefully you've got a good editor. Well, what it, what it shows you is, is a couple of things. Patience and that there are ways, you, if it's something that you want to do and it's something that... Um, other people recognize that you're good at, even if there's not a direct path to it, there's ways to get there. Well, I think that, I think that the main thing for me is that you just couldn't do that now. I mean, you, that, that way in to becoming, if people ask me a lot, like, how did you become a film critic? And that way in just isn't there for people now. What, a decade ago? No, probably even a decade ago is, is, too, is not long enough ago. Let's say 15 years ago then. You, the advice would be, well, start a blog, like have a film blog, write your write something on your film blog and talent without, basically. Like if somebody thinks you're, build up a portfolio of reviews, send those reviews to a, to an editor, and if they like what they see, you might get a job out of it. That was would have been the advice then. These days, even film blogs, I don't think even that is really, like everybody has, a, has an outlet because of social media. So there's a lot more competition a lot more kind of voices out there basically and it's yeah it's hard to find work as a, even as a freelancer to be honest i can't pretend you make any money out of it i wouldn't advise anyone to become a film critic at this point in their lives because there is no money in it but yeah it, it was but it was a very different time then basically the internet was kind of new even view london um you know they they were kind of ahead of the game in many ways in that in that we at least had an archive, whereas, for example, Time Out, a very equivalent site at the time, didn't have a film review archive at that point online. Um, so, yeah, it was very different, very different time back then, basically. So obviously with the advent of social media, everybody who watches movies thinks they can be a critic. And a lot of people get out there and, like you said, post their thoughts, uh, you know, right or wrong, um, whether they're educated or not on social media and call themselves a critic or, or think they've attained that title. But to you know, properly review films, one has to have at least a cursory knowledge of, well, any number of aspects of filmmaking, I would think. So from cinematography, screenwriting, editing, did you, um, did you go to college or university for, for any of this? Or did it strictly grow out of your passion for, for watching films? And how have you educated yourself over the years in these aspects of filmmaking to keep yourself sharp? Um, I mean, I come from a, from a, if not a filmmaking family, then certainly a, a TV family. My, my father was a sound recordist for the BBC, so I'd been on film sets, and, or at least TV sets and things like that. So I knew about that, and he obviously had a wealth of technical knowledge from, from film, quote-unquote filmmaking. It's the same, they don't call it TV making, you know what I mean. You know what I mean when I say filmmaking. So there was that from the beginning, and then um, yeah, primarily my own reading and watching films and learning, and learning about it all from that. From that point of view, so I've always, as I said, I've a lifelong film fanatic. So I've always had a grounding in in the way films are made and and that sort of thing. For all that time of View London, my role was I would never have really called myself a film critic at that point. I was a film reviewer. My kind of role, my sort of brief for the interviews was sort of conversational, almost chatty, informative, 
like basically your friend down the pub who likes who likes films and you're asking somebody with so i was i was reviewing as much from a, as a from a perspective as a as a consumer really i mean literally by midway into sort of working for view london they changed the structure so that every film review was was structured the same way and it was like what's it all about bit of plot type you know two paragraphs of plot the good the bad worth seeing so i was really only just like saying you know what's good about it what's bad about it and that was and that was the sort of extent of the of the, of the reviewing so i've never written for i have written for things like empire and total film and and various other film magazines and lots and lots of websites and things like that but i've never really written for a kind of academic publications like sight and sound or anything like that so i don't think of myself as a particularly analytical film critic more a sort of yeah i mean consumer reviewer i suppose but uh, that's that's doing myself an injustice a little bit i suppose but somebody with a bit of with a wealth of knowledge about film history i think i bring that to to the to the reviews and stuff like that but yeah and an appreciation generally for all genres and all um decades and you know and every single aspect of it really well how do you answer the 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 critic of a critic and what we're referring to there's is you're obviously there's there's positive reviews there's negative reviews have you ever gotten kind of attacked for a negative review to the extent where you know you had to kind of sit back and and think about it a little bit or or something you know how do you react to criticism of your reviewing of a film if it's not necessarily positive or 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 somebody just disagrees with it first of all never read the comments uh, uh, secondly, I mean that's not to say that I, I don't think I've ever really written for somewhere that did have, like that comment, like that did generate a ton of comments or anything like that. I did, I did get like one negative comment for my review of Daredevil, which uh, the the movie, the Ben Affleck movie, which and it's always kind of like you know, comic book people that, or that take a, that take issue with those kinds of with those kinds of things. I mean, mostly I love all those movies, but Daredevil I, I thought was a bit rubbish, and I and uh, I, I had a comment that said something like like you know nothing about Daredevil, and then, and I wanted to write back I know lots about Daredevil I've read tons of Daredevil comics that's why I didn't like the movie very much, but anyway I haven't really had to deal with with that even on Twitter I never get like I never get I I suppose I don't ever really say anything all that controversial, you know I give plenty of one star movies but they of one star reviews but they're usually to movies that nobody could really argue was a one star movie you know I'm not a big fan of the Transformers franchise but I don't think Transformers fans are passionate enough to like you know come after me for for saying so I've never had that experience where I've kind of slagged off a Christopher Nolan movie and fallen foul of the of the army of Christopher Nolan fans so it's not really something I've I've had to deal with all that much yeah I I see that some comments I think uh, I'm trying to remember if it was after Wonder Woman 84 or some some negative review I saw of that and I think the comment I saw was what what gives the critic the right to be able to say that this movie is better than other movies and and that's where I think the education and understanding the film I think that's what makes a critic not necessarily the better context. but yeah exactly exactly the ability to contextualize and place it alongside other similar movies yeah i mean in the case of wonder woman i i hold my hands up i enjoyed it while i was watching it when you look at it afterwards there are lots of things that jump out and you can use it yeah it's definitely flawed but i had a good time watching it that's all i can that's all i can really say the whole thing about ranking and stuff is a very relatively recent thing isn't it thanks to letterbox and stuff like that but 
you particularly with movies like the Marvel movies and the Star Wars movies, there is that tendency to kind of say, well, it is better than this one, but not as good as this one, and things like that. There are certain series that people are more emotional. Yeah, you mentioned Star Wars and Marvel, and especially Star Wars. You know, the, you know, people. I don't know, calling for episodes seven, eight, and nine to be removed from canon. You know, things like that. That's nonsense, really, isn't it? I mean, and the similar thing with the Christopher Nolan devotees. Like, you get the feeling that if Christopher Nolan, Nolan made a truly terrible movie, those guys would still say it was it was the greatest movie ever made, sort of thing. That's all very much an internet thing, isn't it? That's all very much something that's come along in the last, you know, 15 years, really. So you've been involved in, in film critique and, and film reviewing for, for some time now um, in many mediums, but you recently jumped into um, TV critic or criticism uh, and, and the publishing world with a new book, collaborating with on a new book called uh, What to Watch When, a collection of 1,000 TV shows for every mood and moment. The book provides suggestions for shows to watch for... Um, really any number of situations from uh, what to watch when you have three generations on one sofa, which I, I, I loved, and uh, to you know when you really need a good laugh, uh, including the section that you wrote, um, what to watch when you want to switch off, which so many of us, especially over the last year or so, can, <laughs> can definitely identify with. So um, you're listed as a co-author on the book, but in reality, your role was much more than that. Can you tell us a little bit about the project? Yes. Um, I was... Uh, I was okay. So my bridesmaid at our wedding, my was is a book publicist who works for that company for for Dorling Kindersley, and so she recommended me to them. Uh, she basically put my name forward as somebody that might be. So somebody in her uh, the publishers was talking about this TV guide project they had. Um, you know, it was an idea basically as a concept, and she said, and could she recommend a writer? And she put me forward for for that. So that's how. So I was commissioned by Dorling Kindersley, rather than it be my own idea that I pitched to them, I was commissioned by them to write this idea that they already had, basically. So I'm officially, I suppose, I'm, I'm not credited as the compiler, but I am the compiler and co-author of that book. So my job as a consultant was to choose all 1,000 of the TV shows. I mean, subsequently, some of the co-authors swapped some out, but, for, but in terms of the majority of the book, I chose, them, I chose like all 1,000. TV shows. I also had to write the chapter titles, although again I was given, the editors had a couple of um, of ones that they insisted on being in there, like so the three generations on one sofa was, was the editor's idea basically that that title was theirs but most of the other titles I wrote, chapter titles I wrote myself um, and so then I allocated all 1000 shows into those 10 chapters, uh, that's 100 shows per chapter and then I wrote the yeah, it's called What to Watch When You Want to Switch Off, but I thought of it as the trash TV chapter, basically, because it's all those kind of guilty pleasure shows and things like that. And yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, it was a very welcome distraction during during first lockdown because um, it came about at exactly the right time, just around March when we went um, when we went into lockdown in the UK for the first time. It was around the time that I was supposed to be uh, doing the book, and it was a really useful distraction for those six weeks. And in fact. I had, it was weird, the coincidental timing of it was really weird because I'd already decided to take off a period of time from film reviewing in order to write, to write the chapter of the book. And the very first week that I would not have been going to London for screenings anyway turned out to be the first week where all the screenings were cancelled anyway because um, of coronavirus. So uh, yeah, it was, it was very, very helpful. 
Well, you cover specifically in the section, uh, you know, that you wrote what to watch when you want to switch off. You cover a, uh, a large time frame, anything from Gilligan's Island in 1964 to more recent shows like Umbrella Academy. Uh, and there's a little bit of something from every genre in there. So I grew up with a lot of these shows in, in the 1970s and uh, it brought back a ton of memories. But, uh, you know, as I'm sure it will for, for multiple generations, did you have a method of gathering the list of shows for the sections? Yes and no. It was partly, there was, a, there was a brief and the shows had to be available in some way or another, whether it was on DVD or on, preferably on streaming, but, uh, but primarily at least on DVD. Uh, I think there may be one show in my in my chapter that uh, that isn't available on uh, on either of those. So, yeah, I mean, I wanted to cover as many decades as possible, and particularly uh, those old eighty shows that I grew up with, the uh, you know the Manimal and uh, and Auto Man and and things like that that people basically have a, only a people of a certain age remember and nobody else does. Um, I think I even put Simon and Simon in there, which is really kind of scraping the barrel a bit. But <laughs> but yeah, um, so I, I went through all the shows I could. My method really was I went through all the shows I could personally remember. Are we talking specifically about my chapter, by the way, or about like the entire book? Well, you've you've compi- you've compiled the 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 whole book and came up with a list of shows. So you know, I'm, the whole book really. I mean, how did you? Yeah, it was very time-consuming. I remember actually writing, finishing the list on Oscar night. I basically was up all night on Oscar night um, writing that list then uh, of 1,000 shows. And it was by the time I got to kind of, you know, the sort of 70, 70 or 80 mark on each uh, chapter, it was really difficult to find those extra shows to fill the chapters up. So I resorted to, and I and certainly like I was not required to have seen all 1,000 shows, thank goodness. Um, <laughs> Um, so I filled it in with the with shows that I personally loved and you know and that, that would that were easily categorizable, and then I started looking at things like I mean obviously there's a, there's the do you know the one thousand X Y Z you had to do to see watch whatever before you die do you know that series yes yep um, so I obviously took you know got a copy of that book and cannibalized that for stuff that I hadn't already thought of just in terms of the names of shows more than anything else. Uh, even that kind of ran up, I even ran up sort of against limits in that though, like it wasn't, as, it wasn't as simple as just taking all the thousand shows that are in that book and putting them in the new book. There was definitely a brief for as many new shows as possible because obviously you want, they want, the whole point of the book was to, was to cover contemporary stuff. I mean obviously it's already like, you know what, I wrote it a year ago so it's already a year out of date in terms of new shows but there's stuff like I mean I, I think probably one of the most recent things I put in it was you do you know that yet that Netflix show I don't believe so no with Penn with Penn Bagley anyway good good fun show very trashy yeah so I put a lot of recent stuff in there so so yeah I mean I literally scrolled through Netflix to find to find what Netflix had on it that I could include in the in the book and I scrolled through Amazon Prime and I you know I looked at other sources similar streaming services to see just what was available, what was out there, what people were watching. And then I also, event like last resort, I started looking at all the, you know, like if you Google um, the best blah, blah, blah shows you, you've not heard of or something. Um, I went through a bunch of those pieces and just, again, cannibalized those for the final suggestions to round out each chapter to 100. Um, have you had a chance to look at the entire book? Yes, I've, I've read your, the, the section that, you're listed as the author and I've kind of browsed through the, the rest of it. It's, it's got a lot of things in there that, yeah, a lot of, I haven't heard of a lot that 
I have watched, uh, you know, recently I, I mentioned Umbrella Academy, which uh, we're huge fans of. And, and there's a lot that I, just, I remember, you know, when I was a kid, whether it was through syndication or just some of those shows from the 70s and early 80s that just brought back a ton of memories. Yeah, I've got the book on my lap currently. <laughs> it's a, it is exhaustive. I appreciate a couple of shows actually on your, uh, on your chapter specifically, and that that kind of leads us into the next question: Are they in any specific order? We'll we'll just talk about your chapter. Uh, if if I really want to switch off, I'm automatically going to go to a couple of my favorites: Boston Legal, uh, for one, with Jimmy Spader and and William Shatner, um, or Californication <laughs> with David Duchovny. A couple of guilty pleasures, uh, and a couple of really fun shows if uh, for folks uh, who haven't seen either. But maybe I should check out Downton Abbey first if I really want to switch off because that's the first that's the first okay so is there an order definitely not in term but in terms of for me definitely not for the other chapters in that the individual writers were left so we were all given the same sort of similar brief for, for our chapters we had to divide the story divide the entries into a entries b entries c entries and d entries in terms of length and I forget the numbers but I think there are only maybe two a entries for me, that was Downton Abbey and Batman, and then something like, I don't know, I, can't, I honestly can't remember the numbers, but something like 15 maybe B entries, which are the second longest ones, another 20 or 25 C entries, which were the, the, the third longest ones, and then the rest were D entries, 80-something D entries or 70-something D entries, which were just the shortest entries in the book. I think this is probably the case for each of the chapters. The editors decided more or less on the, they had some picks. So Downton Abbey is an A entry because the editors wanted it to be one of the A entries. And I originally had, I think, Riverdale as the, as my second A entry, and I was asked to change that to Batman uh, at some point in the writing. Similarly, I wanted Dallas and Dynasty to have, I'm a huge fan of Dynasty, and I wanted Dallas and Dynasty to both have B entries, but they, again, they vetoed one of those, and so I had to choose something else. And actually, I've had lots of people, lots of my friends have come back to me since and said, oh, I'm glad that Dallas only got the shorter entry and Dynasty got the longer one because Dynasty's much better. <laughs> so it's worked out quite well. But in terms of the order, yes, what I had was, so what I had was page layouts. So I knew what combination of A, B, C, D had to be on each page. And it was really fun putting together the groups, basically. So I tried to make the, the, the chapter as kind of thematically, to have each page as thematically linked as possible. I knew exactly which shows were going to be on which page, if you see what I mean. There's no list, into, they're not in an order in the sense of, you know, page 50 to page 75 or whatever it is, and that's, and that's the, way, the way they were listed. It's more that they're in an order on the individual pages. I didn't dictate the order the pages went in, but I dictated which which films fit into which ABCD combination on which page, if that makes sense. What's well, a colossal undertaking? I'm, I'm really impressed. And it's a, it's a great one to have on your coffee table to, for, for quick reference, especially with all of the shows that are being pumped out right now. Uh, about how long did the project take to complete? I was commissioned, I think, before Christmas and then had to come up with the, with the list, as I said, on around about Oscar time. And then after that, when they all the shows had to get signed off by the by the publishers and by the because it's it's not just the UK publishers. There's also a US publisher involved as well. It was a co it was a cross channel collaboration basically. So certain shows couldn't go in because they were UK only, and certain shows couldn't go in because they were just in the US, not available over here, or things like that. How long did it take? I think in the end, a couple of months 
of solid once the writing once we got the once, we couldn't start writing until the shows were signed off on basically but once that process happened it was about roughly two months of writing I think and again the deadline kept going back because not everybody finished in the you know in the in the right amount of time so uh, so I forget the specific number of weeks but approximately six weeks I think altogether. Well, it's a fantastic book. We've enjoyed reading it since we received our copies. It's one of those things. It's kind of a, it's a quick read. You can pick it up when you want to see something directly related to what you want to watch, try to find something or just read through a couple of things. Uh, we're going to give away a couple of copies to some lucky listeners on uh, of the podcast. So everyone stay tuned for the details on that. We will provide them shortly, but Matthew, you've got, you're, you're working on a ton of stuff. So we've talked about your role as a critic. We've talked about the book. You're also the co-host of the fatal attractions podcast, which can be uh, reached on, on Twitter at, at fatal attract pod uh, dedicated to the erotic thriller genre. So why this genre for the podcast? The short answer to that is because all four of us that, uh, that host the podcast really love the genre. I mean, it, it was born out of a um, out of a conversation on Twitter about how much you know, somebody said something about Basic Instinct, and somebody else said, "Oh, I love erotic, I love erotic thrillers," and I said, um, "Oh, I used to love those movies. I, you know, I saw all of them in the cinemas." I mean, I'm I'm quite a bit older than than everybody than the other three co-hosts, so I had seen all of those films in cinemas, whereas a lot of them are just kind of sort of caught up with them on video or TV or stuff like that and the conversation kept going and you know somebody said oh it should be a blog or and and then somebody else said no it should be a podcast and then we were like oh you're right it should be a podcast yeah let's do it and um, I think there was about five people in the initial conversation and one of them was also going to be involved and then pulled out um, before we did our first episode and the other four of us just stuck with it and now we're like 72 episodes in I think we started in 2017 something like that and uh and yeah we're 72 am i is it 72 72 episodes i think it's 72 i'm just going to check but it's been a lot of fun that that um that podcast and there's there's so many films in the genre like there's so many it was originally just going to be 90s erotic thrillers um and then we decided to branch out into other into other decades but there's yeah there are so many erotic thrillers we've still got literally hundreds still to do if we if we want to keep going and yeah sorry swimming pool is our latest episode and that is episode 72 and we've covered i would think we've probably covered most things you can name at this point i'd certainly be if anybody does have a suggestion of a film we haven't covered yet please tweet us at, at fatal attract pod and we'll definitely get to it at some point here's a question for you for for someone who might be wondering what a erotic thriller is what are a couple of well-known films that you could uh you could mention that people would recognize from that genre well, for me, like the sine qua non, the without which nothing of that genre is uh, Basic Instinct. I mean, I think that's, I think Basic Instinct certainly spawned a huge, it's responsible for the sheer number of erotic thrillers that came out in the 1990s. I mean, the thing is, in the 90s, they were, they were box office hits. They were, that was what Hollywood was making at that time. Like, they were successful, so they churned out tons of them. They were a very regular uh, thing. They were all big, street, big, big cinema releases at the time. Yeah, there's lots of there's lots of different. So, an erotic thriller to us is a essentially a thriller that has a sexual element to it in, of some form or another. I mean, we've bent the rules plenty of times in, over the course of seventy two episodes. We've included things that were really thrillers with just a bit of sex in them, or things that were erotic that weren't necessarily thrillers, and you know, pretty much every combination you can think of. We we did species for heaven's sake, 
um, <laughs> which is not really a, an erotic thriller in the same way that Basic Instinct is. But Basic Instinct is the yeah is the the template really. So so a thriller, usually with lots of twists, usually with a sort of sex element of some sort. Um, Fatal Attraction was obviously the uh, in, was the first episode we did. Basic Instinct was the second. Things like Single White Female, Color of Night with Bruce Willis. Our first four or five episodes were uh, Fatal Instinct, Fatal Attraction, Basic Instinct, Jade, uh, Body of Evidence, Final Analysis, Single White Female, Color of Night. You know, and and we like I say, we've done tons of other ones. They do still make them occasionally. But they're really sort of throwbacks when they do them now. And they just made, is it Fatal with uh, Hilary Swank that's just come out in the US? Um, so that's an erotic thriller. But, that's, but these days, when they make them, they're throwbacks. They're, you know, there was the one with Rosario Dawson and um, Catherine Heigl, Unforgettable, which also is, a, is completely a throwback to that kind of 90s genre. There's sort of vaguely over-the-top sort of styling of the whole thing. And also, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of crossover with what I like to call the, the fill-in-the-blank-from-hell genre. Uh, which is like the nanny from hell, like like um, uh, the hand that rocks the cradle, or the temp from hell, the temp, or the babysitter from hell, the crush, or you know the the landlord from hell, um, Pacific Heights, you know all those kind of that that kind of thriller we we basically also cover as well, even though in those in those particular movies the sex element isn't really as strong as something in Basic Instinct. Ideally, the sex is integral to the or the eroticism is integral to the plot in some way. You shouldn't be able to take the sex scenes or the erotic scenes out of an erotic thriller and it make no difference at all, if you saw what I mean. It should be integral in some way. And you have certain, you know, certain films that are all about that, uh, like say Nine and a Half Weeks, and certain films are not. And the best ones have a sort of strong combination of both thrillers and eroticism. <laughs> Admittedly, it is a very niche podcast, but it's uh, but it's hugely entertaining. Uh, it's been it's great fun to do it for it's it's been great fun doing it for the seventy two episodes. Our next episode is going to be on Zandali, and I should probably give a shout out to my co-hosts um, Leslie Pitt, uh, Emily Thomas, and Paul Costello. What's interesting, I think, about us as a as a group is that we have, we we have very very dis- different voices. We represent sort of four very different you know areas and opinions and what have you. And um, I think that comes across really well in the uh, in the podcast. I mean, I, weirdly, I don't know if you guys listen to your own podcast, but um, I do listen to ours, and I find it extremely entertaining, even though I already know what we've talked about, which I know is weird, but uh, but I genuinely enjoy it on a on a completely separate basis to um, actually recording it. Yeah, we do the same thing, and uh, we we hope that it, everybody listening is having as much fun as as we are making it. Uh, fun podcast, fun genre. So uh, we'll link uh, to your podcast uh, in the show notes. And obviously you can go out, jump on iTunes, find the Fatal Attractions podcast or at Twitter at Fatal Attract Pod. Um, add that into your favorites right there next to Heilman and Haver. So along with the erotic thriller genre, you're also a fan, uh, we understand, as we are, of uh, pre-code films. So uh, for those who don't know, pre-code films are those made at the beginning of the rollout of talkies, or sound films, um, through the issuance of the Hayes Code in 1934, which was a set of moral censorship guidelines um, applied to the studios uh, back then. So tell us about your pre-code April initiative and um, and how people can participate in that. I'm delighted that you brought that up, actually, because, um, okay, so primarily, uh, are, you, are you all familiar with November? 
Yes. And Shocktober. Yes, November. I'm not, I'm not familiar with Shock November, absolutely. Right, yeah. so so um, I don't know which came first, but probably Shocktober came first, I think, because that seems to have been going quite a bit longer. Shocktober is just effectively watch, tweet about, um, and write about on social media as many horror films, or a horror film a day throughout October. And then because of that, that inspired somebody to create November, which is the same thing but with film noir movies. And I had previously, I mean, the, the names previously kind of set my teeth on edge a bit, you know, like, like but it turned out like last year, uh, sorry, two years ago, that I had, I just coincidentally had 30 unwatched film noir movies on my, uh, on my laptop. And, uh, you know, I thought like November would be the perfect opportunity to watch all 30 in a row and, and get them all seen. Uh, film noir is absolutely my favourite genre, always has been, uh, was very much part of when I became what made me a film fan in the first place was a mutual love of kind of Hitchcock movies and, and film noir that's really what kick-started my entire kind of film obsession really is discovering those as a, as a teenager um, so I've seen a ton of film noir movies but as it turns out I've I, I've seen I've not there's still a good 200 or so that I haven't seen and I've seen hundreds so really enjoyed doing uh, my first November two years ago on Twitter uh, had a great time doing it this this year again seeing another 30 that I hadn't seen before and I just just thought pre-code movies are, are a, there's a large number of them that I've not seen and I and I do love the ones I have seen so I was just idly toying with okay if you were going to do like pre-code movies in a month given that you can't do October because of Shocktober and you can't do November because of November which month would it be and I just the pre and April were the two sounds that that kind of connected for me so so I came up with pre-code April and just sort of as a almost as a joke sort of said oh you know maybe we should do pre-code April for pre-code movies and then I thought yeah actually that's a really good idea and even if nobody else does it I'm gonna do it so yeah so the so the very basic idea is it's, it's extremely simple if you have a love of or an interest in pre-code movies and you want to watch pre-code movies in April a with a bunch of other people who are also watching pre-code movies in April then basically tweet about it as much as you can on, on Twitter and use the hashtag pre-code April, no space, no hyphens. So the idea being, I suppose, that if you click on that hashtag, you can see lots of other people talking also about um, pre-code films. There's no set guideline for what to watch when. <laughs> I haven't really put too much thought into like what else we can do with it on its, on its first year it's hopefully just going to be a bunch of people watching them and talking about them. And I don't mind if, you know, like I said, there's no rules at all. If you just want to watch one film in April, one pre-code film in April and write about that on social media, or actually I say social media, for the first year it's really only going to be Twitter. So on Twitter during April then please do join in and do that. If you want to watch one a day for, th uh, for 30 days like I'm going to be doing, then please do that too. And if you want to watch as many as you can in 30 days, then do that too. I really, there are no rules other than if you write about a pre-code movie on, on Twitter in April, please use the pre-code April hashtag. <laughs> so far I've been doing a, a kind of recruitment drive on my Twitter feed, which is um, at filmfan1971, uh, where I've just been asking anybody who's interested to let me know that they're interested in, interested, and I've added them to a list that I've called pre-code April proponents uh, on um, on Twitter and the idea basically I'll send out reminders to everybody that's on that list in March that pre-code April is coming up if they're if you know and uh, and yeah just to remind people basically that it's happening in April but I mean I, I'm guessing that 
throughout March I'll be unable to shut up about it on Twitter so people will have a pretty good idea by that point. I know I'm on the list and I think Matt you're on the list as well so we'll we'll we're looking forward to that and if anyone is wants to know more about the pre-code and what that means I say simply watch the Thin Man series I just which I just watched you know through the whole thing the other week you watch the first one which is definitely a pre-code movie there's drinking there's innuendo there's it's just a super fun movie and then each of the other ones arguably get a little less entertaining as they go on well they're less they're not pre-code the other ones it's just it's only the thin man that's exactly the others yeah. are so there's a strong difference between the between them and that's interesting in itself i think yeah we rewatched um, the thin man recently actually and, lo- and just loved it i mean i'd always loved it but i hadn't seen it for like 20 years so it was a real joy to revisit it recently it is such a good movie I um, just want to say I've got a, I do have a, a pre-code list on Letterboxd with about with just under 300 films on it. If people want to kind of you know to get an idea of what's what's available, and I'll happily take any suggestions uh, for additions to that list. I think I've got more or less everything I can think of, um, but I'm sh- but I'm sure to be missing like a good handful. So if anybody's got any suggestions, um, please let me know in the comments on Letterboxd or something like that, and I'll add them. Sure. So, Matthew, as a critic, you must run into a, a lot of incredible films that, that fall through the cracks, especially with the number of films being introduced daily to streaming services these days. It seems like there's a new one every day. And I know, I think Netflix has dedicated themselves, what, to one a week uh, this year, a new film every week. So, uh, so another one of the hats that you wear is as a contributor to Vodzilla, which is the UK's first uh, video on demand magazine. So in your column, you review the best hidden gems on Netflix, Amazon Prime, and, and Disney+. Plus. Tell us how you compile these lists, and if you can, maybe your top five, maybe under-the-radar films. Yeah, sure. Um, okay, so I've, I've been writing for Vodzilla for uh, uh, pretty much since I lost the View London job, so since, for about six years now since um, View London folded in 2014. Uh, and it's run by a friend of mine called Ivan Radford, and he's, he does a terrific job as editor. Like he really, he really dedicates that site to covering every single streaming service, not just like Netflix and Amazon Prime and BBC iPlayer or whatever, but literally everything. If it's streaming anywhere, Godzilla will run something about it or mention it in some way. And it's a, it's a fantastic and invaluable site for keeping up with what's on, you know, what's on the, what's available on various streaming services. And I highly recommend it to anybody that's maybe lost for what you know what should I watch on Netflix what should I watch on Amazon Prime and obviously as you know probably those you know those sites in particular their algorithms are all over the place like it's it's impossible to find stuff even when you know it's on Netflix and it doesn't it's weird that the stuff doesn't pop up for you there's so much stuff that's on Netflix that people just don't know is there so how do I go about choosing them it's 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 a combination of things I regularly check a website called Just Watch an app called Just Watch which tries hard to keep up with the new additions to in particular Amazon and, and uh, Net, Amazon Prime and Netflix but they're often fallible they often miss things they often get things wrong what have you so I do my own research as well I free I, I do a lot of scrolling through um, through I use the um, there's another website called I think it's called what's new on Netflix but it, but it, there's another website with a very similar title so so don't quote me on that but it's something like that and it catalogues removals and, and new additions and helpfully lists them in, in you know by date basically so you can go through it for the last kind of few months and see what the new additions are to Netflix so I catch a lot of things that would otherwise have fallen through the gaps that way 
it's almost impossible to do that for Amazon Prime. The same guy that runs the What's on Netflix site did attempt to do it for Amazon Prime, but I think I think it just it's too difficult. I think for whatever reason that's not as accurate. So I do my own research on Amazon Prime. I've got a long list of films, for example, that I've seen at festivals that never that either never got a UK release or got a very tiny UK release that I think should be more widely seen. And I, what else do I do? I also on my Twitter feed. Um, because of COVID, I've been doing a kind of daily film recommendation list. So I'm regularly checking the streaming services for stuff that people might not know is on there and stuff I want just personally want to flag up that's on there. So I do the obvious stuff sometimes, but I also really try hard to find kind of deep cuts for hidden gems. The Disney Plus column you mentioned, that's really that's really a one-off for Bodzilla. So I do do a hidden, two, hidden, two regularly updated hidden gems columns on Bodzilla, one for Netflix and one for Amazon Prime. I did a Disney Plus one, but it was a one-off on the launch because I don't think Disney Plus update their movie selection all that regularly. I've no idea if if stuff ever comes off Disney Plus, for example. Um, I'm assuming it doesn't, and that they just that anything that's on there is on there for perpetuity. But but certainly Netflix and Amazon Prime change all the time, and and what I found interesting is that a lot of the films jump from Netflix to Amazon Prime and back again. I find that really interesting. Even something like Les Misérables, the the recent cop. Um, thriller that's an Amazon Prime original on the poster and yet it's on Netflix now I don't really understand that at all so it's kind of a passion of mine anyway to be to be looking for those kinds of movies I think my heart's much more in recommending movies to people than it is necessarily being a critic to go back to talking about being a critic earlier I'm much more interested in putting a great film in front of somebody and and you know and telling them about its existence and then they watch it and discover it and what have you and that's that's what I find really thrilling about being a film critic is that ability to kind of flag up something that people maybe haven't heard of. Yeah, with so with the Netflix and the Amazon Prime columns, I, I do them, I update them relatively regularly. Without doing, unless you're going to give me kind of 10 minutes to, to go through list again, I can't give you a list of overall hidden gems, but I can give you a list of under the radar films from for, for 2020 that if you haven't seen, you should try and catch up with. So the first of those is The Kid Detective, which did get a US release, I think, but maybe obviously with COVID, not perhaps a very big one. Um, that's a great film. It's um, Adam Brody as a as a kind of he was a, he was previously a kid detective and now he's in his twenties and he's kind of, you know, uh, he's still solving kind of local crimes, but like he's disgraced because like, he failed to solve a case when he was younger or something like that, and he just gets drawn into a mystery. That's really great. Have you, have you guys seen that movie? I have not. I've I've seen it. I haven't watched the film. But I've but I've uh, I've found yeah. it scrolling through, so I'm going to put that on the list for sure. I really enjoyed a movie I just saw quite recently, Shit House. Have you heard of that? I have not. That is a debut by a writer director called Cooper Rafe, and it's just a college movie, really. It's just a movie about him. He plays so writer director actor. He plays the lead character, and he's it's just him. He's quite shy and withdrawn and what have you, and he's just struggling with his first term at, at university struggling to connect with other people, struggling to fit in. Um, and so that sounds like a movie you've seen a million times before, but it's so well written and acted and it's so sort of sensitive as well. It, it just, it really worked for me. I was completely blown away by it. I don't think it's had a UK release actually. I saw it um, because of US award season. I'm a member of the Online Film, Film Critics Society, so we get tons of access to award screeners and things like that. So I saw it that way and just thought it was wonderful. Uh, there's a Danish film I absolutely loved called Queen of Hearts with a famous Danish actress called uh, Trini, Trini Dryholm where she plays um, 
she plays a woman, a married woman who basically has an affair with her with her stepson, which uh, sounds like a very familiar plot. If, uh, if but it's um, it's so much more than that plot implies. Basically, it's a, a terrific performance from her. I would uh, I I basically nominated her wherever possible in awards season this year, but uh, sadly, at least in the UK, my awards my nominations didn't register with the overall London Critics Circle votes. Um, then there's a film called System Crasher, which I think came out possibly last year for in the US, but was this year in the UK. Oh, I say this year, possibly 2019 in the US, but 2020 in the UK, which is a German film about a, a very angry, well, I think she's supposed to be like nine, nine-year-old girl who's kind of in the care system and, and you know, it's constantly kind of violently acting out and stuff like that. And, a, and a, a somebody kind of tries to to take her under his wing sort of thing and you know make her life better and what have you and it's the girl is played by Helena Zengler who is the or Zegler Zengler I think it is who is the is currently co-starring with Tom Hanks in News of the World um, so the girl that's in News of the World is is in that movie because she made this movie called System Pressure where she's just absolutely terrific and it's funny because um, the first few minutes of News of the World has her kind of being angry and, and raging and screaming and stuff like that. And that's more or less entire. That's more or less what she does for the entirety of System Pressure. I thought that was quite amusing. And then the final recommendation is a, a horror movie that I don't think hardly anybody saw last uh, last year called The Beach House, which is which turned out to be weirdly kind of COVID appropriate, in that um, it's sort of about a virus that that. Uh, it, I mean, it's not like a virus zombie movie in particular, but it does have those like similar kind of elements as long as some as well as some other kind of really weird, creepy stuff. And it, again, that's, that's one I saw relatively recently that really stuck with me. So yeah, and certainly each of those films that I've just mentioned will definitely feature in a future Hidden Gems column when they show up on Netflix or Amazon Prime. Awesome. I've got those, I've got those all bookmarked um, on my list, and uh, they, look, uh, they look pretty intriguing. If anyone shares my, my love of Hidden Gems, um, I've got a letterbox list again called, I think, just recommended slash Hidden Gems which has all the films that I've listed in previous Hidden Gem columns in it, as well as a bunch of other stuff I've seen at festivals that maybe hasn't had releases or I'm still waiting to show up on, uh, uh, on those services. Awesome. Well, do you have a film, personally, that, that um, as a critic you may not have thought you know, is maybe the, uh, the best made film or something that you would you know, recommend from a critical perspective, but something that you've really enjoyed. I mean, I'd call it a guilty pleasure, but when we had, you know, TCM's Jeremy Arnold on here a few months ago, he, he kind of said, why should any pleasure be guilty? You know, if you're watching a film that you really like, it shouldn't be a guilty pleasure. But that said, is there, is there something akin to that on your list of favorite films? Uh, on my list of favorite films? No. But do I have a favorite? I mean, I do have some sympathy with that argument about that no pleasure should ever be guilty, etc. I absolutely agree with that. But on the other hand, my answer is so like obviously a guilty pleasure that I can't really argue against it. So my answer, and I'm on record as saying, you know, this is this is a great film. I've I've kind of written an in defence of piece about this film on a uh, on a website called Digital Spy. But it's Britney Spears Crossroads, <laughs> which is honestly some sort of masterpiece <laughs> it's it's possibly the best good bad movie ever made i think it is just fabulous and i urge anybody who hasn't seen britney spears crossroads movie to see britney spears crossroads movie it's just wonderful i did not expect that i must say <laughs> <laughs> what have other people said when you've asked that you're the first 
You're the first we've asked that of. No, no, no. What have you? Oh, oh, okay. But you said somebody just gave you that. What was his guilty pleasure? Oh, uh, so we were talking to Jeremy about Christmas films because of his book, uh, Thirty uh, Christmas Films to Watch, and his was uh, Bad Santa. Right. Okay. Yeah. Because it wasn't on the his list of hey, these are the of thirty movies you have to watch around Christmas, but he just loved the film. He's written a book of thirty movies you have to watch at Christmas and didn't include Bad, San- Bad Santa. Well, he he like you had some uh, publisher direction, right? Yeah. Given that it's given that it's a TCM, you know, Turner Classic Movies yeah, press okay. book. At least half of the films were from the forties. Just that decade itself, but I, I think that, that Bad Santa was a very close thirty-first, <laughs> and for good reason. <laughs> yeah, I love that movie. Yeah, it's great. I'm not so keen on the sequel, but I thought the original was just amazing. Thank you again to uh, to Matthew Turner. Thank you, Matthew, for taking the time to uh, to speak with us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, make sure to check out Matthew's reviews on the film discussion and social media page Letterboxd, which we will link in the show notes. And just search Film Fan 1971, all one word, F-I-L-M-F-A-N 1971, and follow him, follow him on Twitter at, at Film Fan 1971. And if you're a fan of the erotic thriller genre, check out his podcast, Fatal Attractions, on iTunes and the show's Twitter page at, at Fatal Attract Pod. And solve that eternal debate, what should we watch tonight with Matthew's new book? Request What to Watch When, a thousand TV shows for every mood and moment from your local bookstore or find it on Amazon. And don't forget to check out his Hidden Gems column on vodzilla.co for more viewing ideas. I would just like to add that that's not a typo. Vodzilla, it is vodzilla.co and not .com or .co.uk or something like that. It's weird, but it's, that's what the IP address is. The URL is, sorry. So, vodzilla.co. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you again, Matthew. And uh, join us again next Friday, January 29th, when we'll welcome another talented guest, uh, Seattle-based actor, director, performer, and public speaking coach, Zandi Carlson, who's going to share her experience on building your personal brand as an actor. And don't forget, Highland and Haver can now be heard every week. You can find us on iTunes, YouTube, Amazon Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. And if you enjoy the show, make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend. We'd love to hear from you, so please join the conversation on Facebook and email us with thoughts and comments at highlandandhaver at gmail.com. And until the footlines come up again, thank you for supporting the arts and local theater and for joining us on Highland and Haver. <laughs>